Welcome to the Social Impact Pulse, a podcast where we aim to cultivate intimate conversations with entrepreneurs working at the intersection of the sustainable livelihoods and lifestyle sectors. Each episode is a no-filter conversation with entrepreneurs where we dig deep into the values they hold dear and how that molds and shapes the social impact they strive for through their organizations. In this series, we're excited to be partnering with the Rise Artisan Fund, an impact investment portfolio that invests in early-stage artisan enterprises, creating sustainable livelihoods for rural communities with few economic alternatives. We'll be speaking with social enterprises that are part of their portfolio, and for more information about the Rise Artisan Fund, check out our show notes. In this episode, we are joined by Kayleen Alvarez, CEO of Athena Global and Managing Director of Biduk Indonesia, a financial platform that invests in small and growing businesses with a focus on women-owned and women-led businesses. We'll hear about what drives Kayleen to create financial services that helps clients grow into solid and sustainable businesses, how she cultivates impact through Biduk, the moments that have made her proud, and the aspirations she has for the organization. On with the show. My name is Kayleen Alvarez, and I'm the founder and CEO of Athena Global. And Athena Global is the administering partner for Bidok Indonesia, which is a lending platform for small and growing businesses in Indonesia. And we have two impact foci. One is gender equity and the other is climate change. Kayleen, could you tell us about how you ended up working in the sector, creating financial services, and what was it that led you down this path? So I've been working in access to finance issues in emerging markets for almost 30 years in a variety of capacities. So my experience extends from working in mergers and acquisitions for a large diversified U.S.-based financial services company, but also working at the IFC and the World Bank Group and also being a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer. And so the business model for what is now BDUC Indonesia has evolved over the course of about a 30-year career in access to finance and what is now called impact investing, even before impact investing was a thing. And what I found in, in working in the private sector and in the development sector is that there was a real gap between the needs and the problems that entrepreneurs face in small and growing businesses and emerging markets and the solutions that are being offered. I think so many times we think that banks are the panacea and the be-all and end-all for financing. But actually, if you look historically, there's been a, a larger and more diverse set of intermediaries that provide financing to small and growing businesses. And I don't necessarily mean money lenders. I mean, you know, legitimate lenders. And I think microfinance has done a lot to, to catalyze that space for micro entrepreneurs or people who are looking for to just generate revenue, right? To send their kids to school or to provide supplemental income for the family or something like that. But once you get beyond microfinance, there's sort of this cliff from an investor perspective. And that's that's the gap that we focus on is, is helping those entrepreneurs who have graduated from microfinance being a viable solution to, to most of their business needs. And then private equity and venture capital and even bank financing, that there's a, there's a huge gap there. And we often kind of use the analogy that microfinance is like um, a primary education in how to run a business and, and that kind of thing. But private equity, venture capital, and even bank lending to some extent is like a PhD 
And, and how do you bridge that gap for entrepreneurs from a financing perspective and help them grow up as leaders of businesses to manage a small team and manage a business and understand what information they need to make good business decisions? And so that's the, that's the sweet spot that we play in is graduating more businesses from microfinance, early stage businesses into a pipeline where there is a viable path for them to have more investment. And could you tell us more about how BDUC's business model evolved? The business model evolved because when I was looking in mergers and acquisition, I focused on consumer finance and emerging markets. But then also as working at IFC and as a consultant in the access to finance space, there's, there's a huge disconnect between the risk appetite for what the financial institutions or the investors want to invest in or feel like their risk appetite is comfortable with and the actual needs in these emerging markets. And part of the reason that we play in the segment that we do is because for us, we look at investable businesses as a funnel. And if you want more businesses that are going to be IPOs or unicorns or success stories at the bottom of the funnel, you have to widen the mouth of the funnel. And that's where we play. If microfinance is the universe of all potential investees, we've got to keep that mouth wide so that more and more businesses get to the bottom of the funnel. And that's why for us, we felt that that layer was really, really missing from an access to finance perspective, but also helping small and growing business owners run and build better businesses in a sustainable capacity. We're not looking for unicorns or super fast growth. We're really looking for mom and pop businesses, main street businesses, slow and steady growth. Because for us, one of the fundamental drivers of our business model is acknowledging and recognizing that small and growing businesses are the backbone of any healthy and resilient economy. And we've definitely seen this under COVID. That you know, not everybody wants to or can work for a large multinational, and that should not be the only viable career goal for entrepreneurs or, or people living and working in emerging markets, because I think we've closed a lot of the competency gap in the last 20 years. And so there's, you can no longer say that there's a, a skill gap or a competency gap in many of these emerging markets. And so we also want to you know, a viable path to legitimate employment, building resilience and a strong foundation in these countries. And what we've seen, you know, 60 to 70 percent of, of a nation's GDP is driven through small and growing businesses. And those are just the formal businesses. But what we also see is that there's a lot of informal businesses and their contributions to the GDP or the employment statistics. And especially when we look at gender equity and climate change, the contributions of those businesses are not being recognized. And so we really want to get those sort of businesses into the formal economy, into the sector, so that that we can focus on large-scale empowerment from, from a middle-class perspective and building small and growing businesses. So how has this model been applied to businesses you work with in the creative economy? For us, one of the reasons that we are focusing on developing financial products and services for the creative economy is that we also recognize in a lot of these emerging markets, there is a strong indigenous preference for the creative economy, whether that's music or arts or crafts or food and beverage, right? And one of the great things about globalization is that we all get a little bit, little taste of what the rest of the world has to offer just from being on the internet and sitting at home and, and ordering, you know, Grubhub on takeout. But we really want to focus on doing so in a way that's respectful to the local communities that are perpetuating arts, art and craft and the creative economy. And, and so that we're kind of not making this colonialistic and perpetuating bias in saying, you know, 
what we think is important for from an export perspective, but really supporting the local artisans and the local craftspeople in what they think is important and the best that they have in their economy. And that's why we're grateful for the funding from the, the RISE Fund, because it allows us to take some risks and develop products and services that are more appropriate for the creative economy. And all of our lending is uncollateralized and all of our lending is already based on cash flows, not assets. And so it's not a huge leap for us to develop products, financial products and services that do meet the needs of the creative economy. And by that, I mean, we're looking at the cycles of the cash flows, right? Like, is there seasonality in the business? If you're if you're a basket weaver, you can only harvest reeds during certain time of the year and then the rest of the year you're producing goods, right? But Or what is the lead time? If you are an artisan working in Indonesia or, or in India, and let's say that you're lucky enough to have a contract with someone like Ikea, right? Those are long lead times. You need to be able to buy the inputs. You've got quality control. How do we develop financial products and services that help these small and growing businesses that are the intermediaries and, and more and more as these larger firms look to clean and green their supply chains? How do we use financial instruments to help close that gap so that we can get more and more small and growing businesses into these larger supply chains that are using ethically and locally sourced goods? Kayleen, you touched on this a little, but could you tell us more about the different types of businesses you support and geographies in which you you play? Right now, we're focused on Indonesia and getting to scale in Indonesia. And it's a really dynamic market. And we're happy to be using it as a pilot because it's got a lot of ethnic and cultural diversity. It's a large Muslim population, a large Christian population, a large Hindu population, but also a lot of other ethnicities and religions in there. We also find it interesting because it's an island economy. So that brings challenges in and of itself, but also historically, it's an economy that's been focused on extractives, oil and gas and minerals and mining. And as since one of our foci is climate change, it's really allowed us to focus on supporting small and growing businesses that are moving away from the extractive economy industry, not just into climate mitigation, but also into climate adaptation. We're also doing track record investments in Africa right now so that we can get beyond proof of concept in Africa and raise funding to expand our model into Africa. In terms of the types of businesses that we do invest in, it's interesting. We don't have a screen on our investments that our clients have to identify as uh, social entrepreneurs or in the creative economy, right? We feel like that is our homework to do is to help understand from a global perspective what people consider creative economy or social impact. And we want our business owners to be focused on running a business and we can help them position and frame it for the global economy or global investors because a lot of them just lack the opportunity or the perspective of of the global market, right? In terms of what what is important to someone like Rise or to other investors or donors or DFIs that they like to see in terms of telling the story and, and, and supporting local artisans and craftspeople. And so we actually take that on ourselves because we have a lot of businesses that we've invested in that would not categorize themselves as being in the creative economy or being a social enterprise. But once we explain to them what it is and they're like, well, duh, of course, that's what we do. We didn't know that that was a thing. Right. And so that that's part of our value proposition to our clients is helping them frame their businesses and explain their businesses so that they can attract different types of capital and different types of investors as they do grow their businesses. And so from our perspective, we prefer to invest in businesses like food and beverage businesses that are beyond a a single mom and pop shop, right? They're looking to be an actual business or a brand. Someone who 
is, for example, taking a very Indonesian style of, of noodle, right? A, like a Javanese noodle dish and how they're getting that, that Javanese noodle dish that's very, very typical for a region across Indonesia, right? Instead of just funding a series like one more restaurant or something like that, we're really looking for small and growing businesses that have a, a path to sustainability and, and viability. Our focus is definitely a commercially oriented pro approach, but that's not to say that we're looking for a unicorn or some incredibly high return on our investment. What we're looking for is that businesses that are bringing about positive social impact or climate impact or gender impact in a way that makes sense for the local context, but that shows that they will eventually be self-sufficient. We, we don't necessarily support businesses that are constantly going to be reliant on donor funding or government funding. So for us, our commercial orientation is to help get these businesses to a point where they are generating generating enough revenue and enough profit to help fund some of their own growth sustainably. And so for in the creative economy, we do support food and beverage businesses. We're supporting a business that um, she aggregates locally sourced and produced goods and services in the creative economy. So like small batch coffee and chocolate and other, and other sort of baked goods and combines them with very stereotypical Indonesian things like the Indonesian baskets and Indonesian batik and Indonesian textiles. And she curates these into gift hampers for corporates or embassies to, to, to gift to either employees or like she's got a lot of clients who are embassies that use these as gift baskets and things like that. So we are not going in and, and finding and investing in these. She's got like 300 artisans on her platform now, right? But we're investing in her because she's an aggregator. And so, so that's sort of where we play in the creative economy space. And what we've been able to do with the funding from RISE is to focus on access to finance through an access to markets play, right? Because so many of these, these creative entrepreneurs that are working in these remote islands, they have amazing product, but they don't have a market in which to sell their wares. And so we're helping them supporting with, with online platforms and digital marketing and branding, but also helping them get into retail outlets in Jakarta or in the airport. Or, you know, a few years ago, Indonesia was the host for the ASEAN Games, right? And Indonesia this year is the host for the G20. So helping them get access to markets where they can get more visibility for their products and services. And so our, our financing would help them fund the inventory to be able to do that, right? Or if they have a purchase order, fund the purchase order to be able to do that. And that's where our, our financial instruments and products come into play. Kaylin, you mentioned earlier wanting to get to scale in Indonesia. And, and I wondered, what does getting to scale or scaling look like for you, for, for Bidok? For us, getting to scale means that we are also self-sufficient. And I think one of the limiting factors for us right now is given where we are in our own evolution as an SME lender is that we are capital constrained. We have more quality pipeline that we can deploy capital to than we have funding. And so for us, getting to scale is getting over that hurdle. We are fundraising right now for a bridge round of financing. And so that financing will help us like quadruple our portfolio size that so that we can lend to the quality businesses that we're seeing in the market, but also help fund our operating expenses so that we can get to scale quicker. Right now, we are focusing on Jakarta and we're piloting in Bali as well, because those are two very robust ecosystems. But we're also very, very aware that especially if we want to get into the, the creative economy and work on these more climate adaptive businesses, that they're not going to be based in Jakarta or Bali. 
And so we need uh, funding to expand our scale so that we can get out into the second and into the third tier cities and get further and further out into the regions where we can invest in these businesses that are really much closer to the climate change that needs to happen and to the creative economies that, that can drive the economy. And we need to be we need to be able to have a presence there as well. Well, as you've been in this sector for some time now, how do you cultivate impact at, at a personal level? And how does that manifest itself through the work you are doing uh, with Athena and Biduk? I think for me, it, it comes down to redistributing opportunity. And, and I think that we manifest that as a company in, in two distinct ways. One is that just the sector that we support, right? We're looking for small and growing businesses that can really be drivers of a local middle-class economy. Because at least in my experience, the world is not short on incredibly talented people who have ideas that could change the world for better. The problem, as I see it, is how we give everybody equitable opportunity to contribute those ideas to make the world a better place. And I think, you know, from a development finance perspective or even as a financier perspective, we get so wrapped up in the packaging of what something or someone should be like and the credentials they should have in order to be able to succeed and make a positive change in the world. And I think fundamentally that bias leaves out a a lot of ideas that would be game changers for the world, right? In, in, in a positive way. And so for me, I think as a financier, we haven't done enough in the space to overcome sort of our anti-poverty bias or our bias about what a good business or a sustainable business or a social entrepreneur should look like. And I also think, especially when we talk about women entrepreneurs or investing in diversity, equity, and inclusion, or even climate solutions, I, I think words matter. And we often talk, you know, that people at the bottom of the pyramid or people that we perceive as being poor somehow because they don't have cash, that somehow they're beneficiaries or passive victims of the atrocities committed against them. And I think for us as, as financiers and also as consultants in this space, we really work hard to, to redistribute that opportunity and use words that are, you know, we, we look at our, at our clients as clients, right? Because we recognize that they have potential solutions that we can't see because we're not them. And so harness, harnessing that opportunity and, and investing in that opportunity. And so I think for us, for me at least, this redistributing opportunity comes about as the ethos that drives our business model and what we do and, and why we do what we do, but also our hiring model. I am an American, but I am the only American-based employee in my entire firm. We really work hard to employ talent in the markets in which we operate because we feel, again, that the talent in these markets has a perspective and a nuance that I will never have, even if I speak the language or move to the country. And that is what we're really trying to harness to redistribute the opportunity and look for solutions that would work well in the local context. And Kayleen, reflecting over BDUC's history, what are three moments that have made you proud through this journey and the work that you do? I think for me, the three probably most powerful moments are, are around three different themes. One is that validation that our model works, right? Whenever I'm on a webinar or speaking to investors and people are like, oh my gosh, why are you only in Indonesia? Why can't you do this in my country? This would exactly what this is exactly what we need. So I think part of it is just every time we have one of those moments where we feel like people in the markets that we're trying to serve get what we're doing. 
that's incredibly validating. I think from an investor perspective, you know, anytime we hear from one of our investees that we've made a difference for their business or for their employees and we've helped them grow, that's incredibly humbling, right? Because we are doing exactly what we're what we're trying to do. And then I think the third thing, which is probably more personal for me, is when one of my team members speaks at a conference or on a panel or, or, or talks to a potential client for the first time, I, I kind of, it brings out the, the mama bear in me, right? Because I think that we work really, really hard to build a team that fundamentally gets what we're trying to do. But oftentimes, you know, for there are teams in the markets in which we operate, they don't have the same exposure that I do. And they don't have the vocabulary in either English or in their local language to explain what we do. And I think that working with us over time helps them develop the vocabulary and the perspective to be able to explain the problem and the solution that we're bringing to the market. So whenever I see one of my team members who finally has that aha moment and has the confidence, right? And we support them in in, in explaining what we do to the market and to their colleagues. It, it's a really good moment for me because I feel like that's also perpetuating what we stand for as a firm. Those are some really great highlights. And on the flip side of that, what is it that keeps you up at night? Oh my gosh, what keeps me up at night? Um, I think for me, what keeps me up at night, first of all, my team, you know, the safety and health of my team under COVID has definitely, I've had some sleepless, sleepless nights under COVID for sure. We've had to evacuate some team members. So that's first and foremost, and their, their well-being and their satisfaction. One of the challenges is running an all remote team in like 18 different time zones, especially under COVID is that, you know, it's hard for me to get a sense for how they're really doing, not just the person that they bring to work, but how they're really, really doing as humans. So that keeps me up, up at night. But also I think for me right now, fundraising, right? Fundraising under COVID has been a challenge and we're raising a seed round right now to expand our lending business, Bidik Indonesia, across Indonesia, but also into Africa. And that keeps me up at night because I feel like I owe it to my team and to the clients that we've invested in in Indonesia to have some longevity and be able to continue to invest in them and to invest in more businesses in Indonesia. And as we do our track record investments in Africa, I also, again, feel like we are getting so much positive feedback on the demand for what we're doing. And I don't want to let those potential clients down. So fundraising definitely keeps me up at night. Not so much the money aspect, but but because I don't want to let down potential investees. And so if you could be unreasonable and that seed funding came through, what are some of those big dreams and aspirations? Oh, no, thank you for this question. I think for me right now, I want to be McKinsey Scott, right? Like I, I want to, I want to give it all away. I want to make, I want to have billions of dollars and give it all away. I want to end child marriage. I want to end human trafficking, right? First, first and foremost, let's just end it. And then I think from, from my perspective, because my experience and my passion is about narrowing the access to finance gap in the small and growing business se- sector, especially for women and, and other underserved or unserved entrepreneurs, for me, it would be like the premier global lender for SME and emerging markets using uncollateralized lending, using equitable due diligence process and and making sure that our model is contextually based. Because for me, as a funder in these markets, I often get pushback from investors that they want my loan losses to be less than 5% or why can't they be 1% like microfinance? And, and, and my comment is always like, listen, the market that we serve is would often be served by by credit cards if I was working in the US or Europe, right? These founders, these small businesses would have access to a to a credit card that they could put some of these some of their, you know, 
the hurdles to, to smoothing cash flow on. And so I think for me, the U.S. credit card market is operating at a, at a loss rate of between 23 and 27%, right? And I just say that to my investors, why don't you let me have a loss rate of 25%? Because what that means to me is not that 25% of my investments go bad. It means that 75% of my investments are good. And a 75% success rate is an incredible success rate for any financier, for a venture capital firm, for a private equity firm. And I think if we really want to talk about creating a middle class using entrepreneur as the gateway to resilient and sustainable economies, we've got to focus on supporting 75% of those businesses and not focus so much on the 25% that don't make it. And so for me, if, if money were no object and I didn't have to worry about regulators or people telling me that 25% losses is too much, that's what I would do. I would build a global lending platform to change the dynamic. I change the power dynamic and I change the dynamic of what we consider to be a success or failure. Well, Kayleen, this has been an inspiring conversation. Before we wrap up, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs in the social impact space? I think for me, and I mean, this might sound completely trite, but if I were to tell my you know, 25-year-old self uh, what I know now, I would say to any budding entrepreneur, especially those in the social entrepreneurship space or the creative economy, is to believe in yourself, right? Don't let others tell you that you're wrong. But do take that feedback and learn from it. Figure out how to reframe your problem or your solution in a way that connects with other people quicker. Or figure out what adjustments that you can make to help others get it quicker. And also get out of your own network. If people are telling you that you're wrong, then maybe they're the wrong people for you to talk to. So don't take it personally. Don't assume that if you're not getting where you want to go, that you're wrong. But as an entrepreneur, it is up to it is up to you to figure out what is the right path. And so I think that that is the advice that I, I would give, especially women entrepreneurs who are much more likely to get told no, is to you know, get out of your own way, get out of your own network, find that self-assurance and self-confidence that you believe that you're on to the right solution. But don't be so headstrong to think that the solution that you're going to market with cannot be made better because everything can always be made better. So it's striking that 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 balance. And, and also, especially if you're an entrepreneur in the, in the social entrepreneurship space, I would encourage you to be bold, be disruptive. Don't settle for just to having an incremental in, improvement in the quality of life of the creative economy or the social entrepreneurship space, think big because the world right now needs big solutions. We don't need little tiny changes. Many thanks for listening to this episode of the Social Impact Pulse. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your feedback and feel free to rate and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of the Social Impact Pulse is a project of the Artisan Gateway and the Rise Artisan Fund.